It's July 2019, the height of summer in central Montana. A group of McAllister research students amble down the streets of Lewistown, a small agricultural establishment of antique shops, huckleberry food products, and cowboy poetry contests. A few students go into a gift shop looking for huckleberry honey, and they notice a big banner pasted on the brick wall of a restaurant. On it, a father and son with matching cowboy hats sit atop a wooden fence, their frames silhouetted by the sun as it sets over the Rocky Mountains. Above the pair's heads, the words, Save the Cowboy, Stop the American Prairie Reserve, are written in big yellow and white letters. As the group keeps exploring the town, more and more of these posters emerge from the woodwork, stapled on fences or displayed in front of business doors. As you might expect, I was a member of this group of students, and I've had the American Prairie Reserve in the back of my mind ever since. In a country that is so often prioritized profit over people, restoration ecology was always going to be controversial. Some deny the value of the fields in the first place, and others want to take it and use it for their own gain. In the last episode, we focused on the American chestnut and the battle to bring it back to life through genetic engineering. But as it turns out, genetic engineering is not the only part of this field that has drawn criticism. In part two of our Decade of Restoration series, we're exploring the use of land management to restore ecosystems. The American Prairie Reserve in particular is using land management to restore ecosystems on a huge scale, but they've had to fight the whole way there. In this episode, we'll examine their practices to figure out why. I'm Catherine Irving, and this is The Abstract. Before we meet the American Prairie Reserve, more commonly referred to as the APR, let's take a closer look at land management as a practice and how it's generally used in restoration ecology. This is kind of the decade where we are setting our priorities and kind of showing like, okay, well, what do we want our lives to be? Like, what future can we create? I spoke with Toby Santamaria, a PhD student working in restoration ecology and biogeochemistry at Michigan State University. Their PhD research focuses on McCready Reserve, which sports both forest and prairie terrain, and the effect of controlled burning on communities of decomposers. There's no native earthworms to Michigan, so we know that they're invasive. <laughs> and then we don't actually know what the invertebrate community at McCready looks like either, because most of the focus of the restoration plans at McCready have been looking at plant restoration and like restoration of the actual landscape. We don't know if, um, you know, restoring the landscape has actually led to some sort of difference in how invertebrate communities assemble or things like that. So that's what my research is focusing on is like, okay, cool, like you've restored the landscape. Does it actually do something functional um, or detrimental in terms of like who's doing carbon cycling? And if that means carbon is leaving the atmosphere in a way, we leaving the earth to the atmosphere in a way that we might not necessarily like. Toby, who has worked on multiple different restoration projects over the course of their PhD, is a specialist in controlled burns for grasslands. The thing with a lot of grassy biomes is that they're actually landscapes shaped by disturbance. They've evolved over millennia to actually have plants and uh, animals that are adapted to fire, right? So when you take that away, you're then opening up that environment to plants and organisms that are actually defined by ecosystem stability. So whereas grassy biomes like prairies and savannas are defined by kind of 
disturbance throughout their whole existence, things like, or ecosystems like forests, are defined by stability their whole lives. Forests cannot handle disturbance because they're usually filled with trees and other um, plants that are not fire adapted. Toby thinks ecosystem restoration should always be for the benefit of the people who depend on and use the land. I think it's really important that we think about how to manage landscapes because whether we like it or not, as the climate warms and as the human population grows, the landscapes that we have will need to be rigorously managed for what we need them to do. This idea that there's going to still be somehow like wild, unmanaged landscape is not realistic. It's just not in line with what we know about our needs as like human society, right? This kind of ecosystem restoration is already underway across the globe. So I think and this is something that, you know, most restoration efforts are going to have to start thinking about really seriously is, you know, in helping people and the planet, you have to come up with ways that people can survive by helping the planet. So I think one of the great things about um, kind of conservation efforts in the global south is that they've worked out really strong partnerships between the people who live on the land and the land that they want managed. So like, um, the biological reserves at Tiputini, for example, like it's all native peoples or people indigenous to those lands helping manage it, or it's people who live in those countries helping management, helping manage that land, um, you know, guiding scientists through the landscape, forming coalitions with the government and scientists so that people can do research there. The land is still conserved, people can still make a living. Um, so I think, um, especially in the, the global north, we could really take a page out of that book to see like, okay, how do we create economic incentives so that people want to help us restore landscapes? Toby is adamant that ecosystem restoration shouldn't be about bringing the landscape back to some fictional yesteryear, where the land is pristine and untouched. On the surface, the APR appears to be doing just that. But there is more complexity to their reserve than meets the eye, and the stakeholders in their area of work are all demanding different things from them. So who exactly is the American Prairie Reserve? And why are some people so desperate to stop them? And, yeah, it looks like we are recording awesome. now. To learn more about the American Prairie Reserve's mission, research, and groundwork, I spoke with Daniel Kinka, the organization's wildlife restoration manager. American Prairie Reserve has been around since 2001, and our mission is to create the largest natural wildlife refuge in the lower 48 states, um, a refuge for both people and wildlife preserved forever as part of America's heritage. And so we started in 2001 as a business. We didn't own our first land until 2005, uh, and then we introduced bison to that to that ranch shortly thereafter. Um, a small herd of about 16 animals, and now we have about more than 800 bison and uh, more than 100,000 deeded acres of private land and uh, grazing leases for an, another 300,000 acres uh, of public grazing lands as well. The American Prairie Reserve was the brainchild of Sean Garrity, a former Silicon Valley businessman who sold his consulting firm to return to his home state of Montana. After the Nature Conservancy and the World Wildlife Fund identified the northern Great Plains of the United States as an ideal location for restoration, Garrity and his new organization took over the execution of their vision. The reserve Garrity and the APR have begun to construct is completely free to enter and explore, but has little paved road or cell service to endure to car campers. 
Daniel says that at the moment, the reserve is mainly frequented by the bold and adventurous. But according to him, the views are worth the extra effort. The creation of the reserve wasn't an arbitrary decision made by an idle wildlife enthusiast. Daniel explains that temperate grasslands, which include prairies like the one in central Montana, are a globally endangered biome. It's, it's the fastest declining ecosystem on the planet, and that is largely because of a conversion from prairies to agriculture, both cropland and grazing agriculture. They make really good arable lands, basically, and they have not traditionally been conserved. People live there, domestic animals live there, and our crops live there. And so across the globe, we see this wholesale reduction in the amount of temperate grasslands. And a recent IUCN study found that there was really only four grasslands on the planet that were still intact enough and large enough to be considered for large-scale ecological conservation, one of which was the Northern Great Plains, which includes eastern Montana, parts of the Dakotas, goes up into Saskatchewan. It's it's a fairly big grassland region. It's the, the Northern Plains of North America, basically. I mean, so American Prairie Reserve is situated kind of right in the middle of the Montana part of those temperate grasslands or prairies. It's an area that's still largely intact, has been largely untilled for cropland agriculture, although it is disappearing at an alarming rate. And it's a place where you can actually do grassland conservation at scale at an e- in an ecologically meaningful way. Up until the arrival of white settlers, humans had been using the prairies for their own needs while still maintaining the health of the ecosystem. If you look at the region, we have, since the last ice age, like somewhere between 12 or 13,000 years ago, shortly thereafter, we think people inhabited the continent for the first time, crossing the Bering Land Bridge. And so for about the last 10,000 years, you've got stable populations of many, many different Plains Indians tribes that were largely nomadic. These are people that, because of where they lived in the, in the northern grasslands, they were following game across the prairie as food resource, bison in particular. So largely nomadic peoples, you know, Um, that are moving all throughout the region and a number of different tribes. However, this over 10,000-year relationship between people and the prairie abruptly changed with the arrival of white settlers. Fast forward to about 1801, which is when Lewis and Clark got out there. There had already been a couple hundred years probably of, you know, um, French fur traders active in the area, white, white settlers. Um, but the kind of Lewis and Clark expedition at the very beginning of the 1800s marked the, the beginning of the kind of settler period of the prairies. And from 1801 to about 1899, um, in that century, you see a, a, almost a wholesale reduction or depletion of the, the prairie's indigenous wildlife. The bison were hunted off because of overhunting, but also as a tactic of war. Once the U.S. Army realized that they could use this as a war tactic to subjugate the Native Americans by removing their food base, there was a wholesale slaughter of this species that goes beyond just overhunting and use for parts and factories. This mass slaughter resulted in bison becoming nearly extinct in the lower 48 states, with only a tiny population remaining in what is now Yellowstone National Park. And they weren't the only species to suffer. As bison populations nosedived, so did the populations of dozens of others. They were, you know, the large carnivores were removed because of competition with domestic livestock, and so were the large grazers. They were also a competitor for livestock, and they were hunted off, hunted in unsustainable ways for food resources for, for early white settlers to the region. And so from about 18, in really a period of like almost almost 50 years, um, you see, you see uh, just, a, just a complete collapse, not collapse, but like a wholesale reduction 
in in the 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 animal parts of the ecosystem there you see this transition from basically an indigenous ecological biodiversity to a domesticated uh, homogeneity basically we replaced all of the native wildlife with domestic cattle and largely replaced the people that called that place home with you know white settlers Today, I mean, between about 1900 and today, not much has changed in the sense that, like, they're the predominant animal species in the plains is the domestic cow, and the human population has actually declined somewhat from a peak in about the 1920s, I believe, the 19 teens, um, but still roughly the same composition. It's an area that doesn't have a lot of human habitation, probably never did, but 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 is low now. Most of those people are ranchers and farmers, the descendants of those white settlers, but you also have multiple Indian reservations in the area and a lot of indigenous farmers and ranchers uh, still occupying the area as well. This is the legacy of the prairies. Just like for the American chestnut, the arrival of the European colonists brought death to the prairie ecosystem and ruined a relationship between people and the environment. Now, the mosaic of reservations, ranch lands, and protected refuges in the region puts people with conflicting interests within close proximity to one another, all living upon a barren plain. However, the region's cattle-dominant history has left a glimmer of hope for central Montana's grasslands. This is short grass prairie. They have been largely untilled, so not converted to cropland agriculture, which is good because once you till a prairie, it's very, very hard to get wild prairie back. Um, but that is still being tilled up at an alarming rate. It's a very difficult task that can take, you know, decades once something has been plowed as a wheat field or as an alfalfa field to put that back into native grass. So because so much of the region is still intact and most people have used it for grazing, not for farming, um, there is still that foundation of the ecosystem. The canvas still exists. The wildlife just need to be painted back onto it. To paint the wildlife back into the scene, the APR plans on stringing together 3.2 million acres of protected land in central Montana, which would make it significantly larger than Yellowstone. They plan to build a population of 10,000 bison to fill this huge space. At the moment, they only have a protected acreage of 300,000, plus 1.1 million of federal protected land, and only a bison count of 800, meaning they still have a ways to go. Currently, the, the focus of American Prairie Reserve, our kind of main priority, is accumulating that land base that, that will have relevance to, um, to grassland conservation. Simultaneous with that, though, we are trying to put wildlife back to work and kind of do the rewilding work. So we do think about how to restore the wildlife that exists out there. Bison, because of a strange law in Montana, are actually considered livestock, not wildlife. So we're actually able to buy and kind of ranch um, bison in a way, um, the way a cattle producer would. And so we, we, we put them to use as an ecological actor and we have them do some of the res restoration work for us. But technically we do own them. Technically they're private property, unlike most wildlife in this country and in the state of Montana. So we're able to do very hands-on conservation when it comes to bison. All the other wildlife that we work with is a collaborative effort, effort with the state and federal governments, the local wildlife officials, that sort of thing. Bison aren't the only important member of the prairie community. Daniel explains that before white settlers got to it, the prairie was home to a surprising number of different species. Many, many species are associated with the prairie ecosystems, and, and many people might be surprised to learn that most of the large mammals, at least, that exist on the plains are animals that we typically think of as mountain species. I think most people probably associate bison with grasslands, but things like wolves and grizzly bears and elk, these are all species that not only are perfectly at home on the prairie, but very likely evolved out there in the first place. Um, 
which is which is interesting to think about. But we we associate them with the mountains these days because it's kind of the last bastion of habitat that was left for those species. Although the APR wants to make a home for all of these species, their main focus is on the big three. In terms of our kind of like big keystone species, the ecological engineers or the landscape architects of the prairie are the bison, the prairie dog, and the beaver. A keystone species is one on which the other organisms in an ecosystem rely, a species without which the ecosystem would change drastically and even potentially collapse. And so those three species probably play an outsized role in ecosystem restoration that kind of punch above their weight as individual species because they not only take care of themselves and act within the ecosystem like all species do, but actually create and build habitat for other species that allow biodiversity to really be fully realized in the ecosystem. So we do place an over, we overemphasize those species um, because those species do the work of wildlife restoration um, kind of writ large across the ecosystem. But it's all part and parcel of the same thing. Because we do direct work with bison, people also often think of us as a bison project, which is not untrue, but we think about the ecosystem holistically. We don't think of ourselves as a bison project. We think of ourselves as an everything project, a people and wildlife and land all coexisting together in a fully functioning and restored ecosystem. The second of the big three, the prairie dog, is the cause of a fair amount of concern on Daniel's part. Unfortunately, prairie dogs are very susceptible to plague. The the sylvatic plague is similar to the bubonic plague, um, which is not a native disease to North America. That that disease came from Europe in about the 1950s, so most North American wildlife don't have any natural immunity to it. Um, And probably none are worse off than the prairie dog, um, which is just decimated by this disease. So we do a lot of hands-on prairie dog restoration, but there's only so much we can do in the absence of like an, uh, uh, a vaccine for the plague for prairie dogs. But we do a lot of work trying to dust for, for fleas, basically, to, to try and prevent this vector of transmission to prairie dogs every year. The decimation of prairie dog populations doesn't bode well for the grasslands. Sometimes I feel like a big part of my job is just being an evangelist for prairie dogs. Bison <laughs> are our national mammal. They are understandably and very deservedly uh, this, our national mammal, a symbol of cre- yeah. like we give them a big credit for being this ecosystem engineer, for being this premier, very charismatic um, species on the plains. But what people forget about and just or just don't think about is that prairie dogs are equally important um, as ecosystem engineers and as a species out on the plains. We probably have something like two percent of the historic densities and, and extent of prairie dog that we would have had earlier in the millennia, basically. 2%, so a 98% reduction in prairie dogs across the landscape. And when you consider that prairie dogs support more than 100 other species, both as a food resource and as an animal that creates holes for other species to live in, you can imagine what the ecological ramifications of a 98% reduction in such an important species is. If I could accomplish one thing in my career, if I could just convince more people that prairie dogs are an important, invaluable, and the unsung hero of the plains, I, would have, uh, I will consider my job a success. The APR is different from other restoration projects in that they own a significant portion of the land they're working on. Most large swaths of wilderness in the United States are public land that has been designated as protected by the government. The APR, on the other hand, is operating privately, obtaining land with money from the generosity of individual donors and support from other organizations. American Prairie Reserves largely comes out of the idea that we sort of lost our appetite for making big national parks and protected areas as a country. But there's, there's a good kind of space there for uh, private conservation organizations to do similar work. And so APR is not a national park because it is, by definition, collaboratively managed. APR owns some land out and out. But mostly we're collaborating with the neighboring agencies, whether it's the Bureau of Land Management, the state land agency, 
or the National Wildlife Refuge System um, in the form of the Charles Russell Wildlife Refuge just south of us. The APR not only has the support of many wealthy donors, but also the attention of several large organizations and institutions. These include the WWF, which helped found the APR, the Smithsonian Institute, and National Geographic. The Smithsonian and National Geographic in particular have spent significant time working with the APR to do research on the grasslands. The APR partnered with National Geographic on their last Wild Places initiative, and Daniel himself served as a National Geographic Technology Fellow from 2018 to 2019. The APR hasn't slowed down since I spoke to Daniel in July. In late September, they offered support to the Nakoda tribe and the Aani tribe in their effort to restore swift foxes to the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation in central Montana. Swift foxes, which are the smallest species of Canada in the United States, went extinct in Montana in 1969 and had been absent from the reservation ever since. According to an article in High Country News, restoring wildlife to the reservation has been a priority for the tribes of Fort Belknap. In the article, President of the Fort Belknap Tribal Council Mark Azar states that bringing back former members of the ecosystem not only connects tribe members to the history of the land, but also serves as a reversal of the land's history. With every new species introduced and every fence taken down, the prairie becomes a closer replica of its former glory, and members of local tribes get closer to the relationship with the land that they once had. Earlier in this episode, we talked about the purpose of restoration ecology, and how according to Toby, it should always operate with the well-being of humans at the core of its intentions. In some ways, such as the restoration of swift foxes to Fort Belknap, APR seems to be doing that. But there is one big part of the APR's operation that's been controversial, the creation of the reserve itself. Even with the support of household names, the APR's privately owned status means that they can't just designate a giant chunk of land as part of their reserve. Instead, the APR is working with an America's capitalist system. They're putting their reserve together piece by piece, using a combination of private and public land. Only purchasing land that's for sale naturally, and working with the Bureau of Land Management and others in public lands. When ranches are for sale, nobody we're not forcing anybody off the land, but these ranches change hands periodically, just normally. It's part of the economic cycle there. And so using philanthropic dollars, donation money, basically, when we can afford to, We try to purchase these ranches when they're for sale and convert them from commodity production, i.e. cattle ranches, to to kind of this biodiversity management with with bison as kind of a flagship species. But that habitat, obviously, uh, uh, those ranches become habitat for all manner of prairie wildlife. There's no legal reason why the APR shouldn't be allowed to buy up land like this. But the amount of money they get from donors means that they are accruing ranch land at a fast rate. And this has had an effect on a group of stakeholders we haven't discussed yet, the owners of the cows that now dominate Montana. If the amount of Stop the American Prairie Reserve signs I saw papering Lewistown is any indication, most ranchers hate the APR too much to be willing to work with them. Next time on The Abstract, we'll talk to the makers of the signs themselves to figure out why the APR is so controversial. We'll also try and draw some conclusions about the purpose of restoration ecology and how we should be navigating ecosystem restoration in the next decade. How do we prioritize the salvation of our planet and also take care of the people who live on it? And how do we make sure the decade of restoration is a success? This episode was reported and produced by me, Katherine Irving, and edited by Corey Suzuki. I designed our tile art, and our theme music is by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode of The Abstract and you want to be a part of its creation, reach out to us at kirving at 
Whether you're interested in researching, writing, editing, guest hosting, or literally anything else, we need you and would love for you to join the team. Once again, you can reach me at kirving at mcallister.edu if you're interested, or if you have any thoughts about the episode you'd like to share. The Abstract is a podcast from the Mac Weekly, your independent student newspaper. For more news like this, subscribe to our newsletter at themacweekly.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Mac Weekly. I'm Catherine Irving. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. A small agricultural establishment of antique shops, Huckleberry Food Products.